Welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast, the nature-based show hosted by me, Jack Perks. Each week I'm joined by a guest from the world of wildlife television, art and science. We take a light-hearted look into what makes these people tick and connect with the natural world so strongly, with new episodes out every Tuesday. This week I'm talking to Matt Hayes, and this is part of a series of podcasts all month talking to well-known and famous anglers. I'm also working on a crowdfunder this month, Britain's Hidden Fishers, which I'm aiming to make a one hour long film on British fish. Think Blue Planet, but on a much smaller budget. There's a link to that in the description. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter at TitBearded, and there's now a Facebook page, The Bearded Tits Podcast. Now it's fair to say that Matt Hayes is one of the most recognised names in British angling, having been on TV for more than 20 years, and appeared in over 200 programs. Whether he's on his solo adventure or paired up with Mick Brown, his programs are widely regarded as some of the best angling TV programs made, with the Great Rod Race, Lake Escapes, and Total Fishing being among highlights. I speak to Matt about his start in angling TV, how it's changed over the years, and how salmon fishing has taken up a lot of his time in recent years, along with quickfire questions at the end, like favorite fish, venue and methods here's the chat well thanks for joining matt you're welcome how are you doing anyway you're keeping well yes i'm absolutely fine uh, I'm, I'm in norway the area of norway where, norway where i live is just about the safest place in if not the world certainly in europe i saw a map the other day and it showed uh, the whole of europe and greenland and iceland and it marked everywhere um, green, yellow, and red. So Britain's red, Sweden's red, Denmark's red, everywhere's red, France, Germany's a lot. Yellow's the next best thing, but green's the best. And the only green place in Europe is the county that I live in, in Norway. You, you mentioned Norway there, but you do spend, isn't it kind of, I don't know if it's 50-50, but you spend a lot of time in the UK as well. Is it like the summer and then you go back for the winter Norway or, or roughly or? It, it used to be mainly the other way around, actually. Oh, okay. Sorry, right. Um, our salmon season is in the summer, uh, between June and the end of August, beginning of June to the end of August. And this place is a salmon fishing lodge in the summer. The family here, my wife's family, have been doing that since 1882, when the first Brits came over here to visit. And uh, we've still got that tradition going today. And th- these days we're a thriving quite internationally re- renowned salmon fishing lodge on probably the best salmon river in the world now or at least the most um, of the accessible ones it's, that's so, the gala isn't it on the gala yeah yes yeah, so yeah our summers are very busy you know we look after clients a lot from the uk who come here to stay and fish with us we control about four kilometers both banks of probably the best bit of a fantastic river so the summers have always been busy but up until very recently, I've returned to the UK a lot for work projects, filming projects, meetings, conferences, shows like the London Fly Fair and all that sort of thing. But very recently, literally in the last two weeks, I've just sold my house in England. I'm now basically a Norwegian resident. Uh, having said that, I've still got a lot of work and projects and ideas that really are based in the UK. So when COVID lifts, and things become easier, I will be coming back. And I'm hoping to be back in January or February because me and Mick Brown have been planning some fishing trips now for about 
well, a year almost, and it just seems like forever, and we're desperate to go. So, fingers crossed. It won't be the end of my time in the UK, but um, nowadays, Jack, I've got, you know, I've got a family over here. I've got three kids, two in Scotland, three over here. So, uh, I've been a prolific breeder. <laughs> you're, you're rivaling some of the fish, aren't you, for uh, I am, of offspring? <laughs> well, I think we'll, we should start really with the start of your, your career. So, what was your start in, in angling TV? Because it's an interesting way to, to take the sport, isn't it? So where did you kind of begin with that? It's a good question. Quite topical, actually, because um, the other day I took delivery from the UK of a whole pile of old transparency slides from the era, really, from the beginning of Total Fishing, which was the first major show I did. It wasn't actually the first one, but it was the one that really you know, put me on the road to success, if you like. So I've got lots of pictures from then up to the digital age when I switched to a digital camera was in 2003. And I'm thinking about writing a book. In fact, I am going to write a book and the working title is Going With The Stream. And really, in many ways, that's been the story of my life. I mean, if I dial it right back, I've been fishing for as long as I can remember. Both of my grandfathers were fishermen. My uncle Colin, sadly no longer with us, was a keen fisherman, and my dad. And so at weekends, they used to take me to fishing matches. And, you know, the, the, the club match fishing scene in those days was really thriving. It was our way of escaping the industrial urban midlands and fishing mainly on the River Severn, some of the canals, and also we used to go to places like Edgebaston Reservoir. But that, that was very much our escapism. You know, I, I was brought up around Birmingham and the black country and it was a really important escapism actually so I've always fished I've always been fascinated by water drawn to it really I can't really remember a time when I wasn't fishing but it was a hobby until the age of about 28 29 years old and I had a very successful career commercial career but there was something in me that just wanted to do my own thing and so I left a very safe job with a good pension and, you know, a very um, large number of staff, lots of responsibility. I love the job. I didn't like company politics. I hated it. I just wanted to get on with my job. Swapped um, it for angling politics now. Yes, a little bit, I suppose. <laughs> of course, there's no, there's no such thing as a, you know, a perfect world. But the world of angling politics is minuscule compared to some of the corporate stuff. Yeah. And um, so I embarked on a career, originally not with the idea of pursuing in angling media. That just kind of happened at the same time. And I got picked out by Angling Times, made a couple of fishing videos, as they were then, in the early days, which then got picked up ultimately by Sky Television. Um, and I made a couple of series of a thing called Fish Tales for Sky, and they were very short five-minute shows that went on when the Premier League started. They went on with the Monday night football and they were very popular. I didn't realise at the time that the commissioning editor um, was the next door neighbour of another fairly well-known angler at that time. And uh, I won't say his name because it's not really relevant. But after we'd made a couple of series of fishing tales, I, I went to this meeting with this guy called Roger Moody. I hope you're watching this, Roger. 
You're probably not. You're probably brown bread now. But if you are alive, um, you'll remember that you told me that I should give up my television career because I was no good at it. And it was a devastating, crushing meeting, all based on his relationship with this other person, really, whom he felt he probably owed a favour or whatever. Uh, and as a consequence of that meeting, I was quite depressed and I, I almost gave it up. But it was the people around me who persuaded me, no, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Don't listen to him, Matt. And so I bounced back. Um, Discovery contacted me and said, look, we love what you're doing and we want you to make a series for us. And by the way, we'll pay you. Uh, they didn't pay us a lot. People think I've earned huge amounts of money out of fishing. I haven't. But, uh, and that, but that's never been the reason why I did it in the first place. No, no, no. So I started making shows for Discovery. And it went from there, really, Jack. You know, as time went by, um, I got more and more control over the content as my relationship with the people at Discovery improved. And it went on really pretty much unchecked until about six or seven years ago when we experienced a financial crash. And for Discovery particularly, they lost so much budget that it was really impossible to make shows for the sort of sums of money that they wanted to pay, you know. So at that stage then, I really took control of my own media. And I realised that if you were you know, going to survive, I had to have my own network and my own media. So... I invested huge amounts of time in social media and building that up and creating my own network. And to be honest, I've never been happier because really a lot of people say to me, when are you going to make another television series? But I don't need to, I can make my own stuff now and I'm, I enjoy it more. And to be honest, it's better. One of the things, and I'm, and I'm not blowing smoke up your ass, but one of the things I would say that's rare in angling presenters is to get someone who can you, you get a lot of these people who, who are very good anglers but they're not very good communicators they're not very good presenters and i'd say you've got that good blend that you're a, you're a good communicator and you're a good presenter as well as being a good angler and arguably that's more important i mean if you're doing a fishing program you've got to catch the fish but you've got to you've got to sell the show you've got to be passionate to engage people and i think that's something not pointing any fingers at anyone in particular but, but we've lost a lot in angling tv now where you get these people who they're good anglers, but they're just not very engaging to, to, to watch in particular. Well, it's nice of you to say that about me. And uh, of course, you know, there must be something there. Otherwise, I wouldn't have survived doing it as long as I have. Um, but I just rode a wave, really, Jack. And at yeah. the end of the day, you've hit the nail on the head. The, the, the differentiating factor, there's two or three things, one of which is work ethic. People have no idea the work that I put into driving forward to make this stuff happen because it doesn't happen on its own. The comment that I get from people, which, you know, you just have to live with what you've created really, but it's why don't you make another television series? Well, you know, I can't just pick up the phone and say, oh, I think I'll be on the telly tomorrow. To the television <laughs> it just doesn't work like that. And, you know, half the time you're fighting their idea and vision of what fishing should be. And I was always very rebellious with that. I always insisted I made stuff to some extent on my own terms. You've got to have a bit of give and take. But what people don't realise, I think they realize, think that fishing is like, I phone up Mick, hello Mick, uh, should we go perch fishing tomorrow? Oh yeah, right, and these cameras just follow us around like magic eyes. 
that's not how it happens you can't you know technology has not gravitated to the level where you can make television like that it has to be crafted and there has to be an idea and you have to pick it you have to sell it to people and persuade people and cajole people and then you have to get people around you who are prepared to record that vision and make it reality and i always believed that my vision of angling was better than that of some london-based producer who sat behind a desk all the time and the reality is it was but convincing them that is not of that is not that easy so there is that element but there's also the desire and the drive because when you go out fishing with cameras you, you you have to make compromises you're often not fishing at the best time of day low light's a bit of a no-no for a start off and the best fishing is usually in low light especially with big fish so you have to work your way around office hours and union rules and all sorts of things that people have no idea and ultimately one of the most refreshing things about creating my own and editing my own material was gaining that level of editorial control and the freedom that comes with it. So I've never been happier making the stuff than I am now. I think the stuff I make now is a lot better than what, what was there in the early days. You know, not, not disparage, being disparaging about that, but I am able to create fishing in my own image. And so I've just, I've had to evolve, but you are right. Catching fish is, is almost the thing that gets you to the starting gate. And if you're not very knowledgeable and also tactically aware, because you have to take account of timescales and circumstances and many, many curveballs that get thrown your way. For example, when Mick and I go out filming, you'll have no end of people come bowling up during the course of the day and just start talking to us. And that stops us working. You have to, you know, th th there's a line between being pleasant and amiable and conversing with people. But all the time you're thinking, I'm sitting here talking to this bloke and the hours are burning past. We should be filming something about rigs or bait or whatever. So it's a huge problem for me and Mick now being on the bank because we do get approached by endless people that actually do stop us working. And so, you know, we don't want to stop them because we love the, the rapport with them. But actually managing the shoot is a huge problem that most people would never think of. It, it isn't just this idea that you go out fishing. Nonetheless, these tactical curveballs get thrown up to you. How can I bring this magic to life? How can I make people feel what I feel inside about this? And then if you can overlay that with a certain amount of spontaneity and ability to, to react to what's going on and pick up the vibe and introduce some humour into it, then you can create the magic. But it's not easy. And for that reason, it's hard to break into. It's very hard to get the combination, as you say, of the fishing background and knowledge with the ability to, to either educate or entertain or inspire. Yeah, no, I agree, definitely. And, I, and I, re I remember when I worked on Crabtree, one of the problems we had with Discovery or Shed or whichever one it was, was they were saying that in terms of viewing figures, they got the same for a new fishing program as they did for a repeat. So they weren't very incentivized to commission a new program when they can just rerun, you know, John Wilson, whatever, or Total Fisher or something like that, which is a shame. 
But from a business point of view, it makes perfect sense. But in terms of if you're hungry for new content, then that was a, a bit of a problem. Yes, but, but I mean, you you know, you were in an era when they were sort of dropping down the, the slippery slope in terms yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. of their own new content, fresh content. And it, it comes back to what I said that, you know, people who watch television, imagine it, it, it's just so easy. You earn fortunes doing it. It's so easy. It's not. No, it's very difficult. There's a lot of people competing for that. And you've also got to bear in mind that television these days, Jack, is not very powerful. You know, it's lost out to social media compared to social media. Television now is weak. And, you know, around 10 years ago, I noticed in the industry, this panic set in where they, they knew that streaming and some form of digital self broadcast was going to be so important but they had no idea how to accommodate it. You know, they were so commercially naive and still are. I mean, I've worked with the Beeb since and their social media and marketing was appalling. Well, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because I was just about to ask you uh, about that series. So you were a judge on, was it the Big Fish? Was it, I think it had like two names, right. Earth, Wild is what? And if I'm right in saying, were they the same production company that makes Bake Off? Same power as yes. the Bee? So, yes. um, so you, you were kind of going into it there anyway, but what was it like working on that series then? Because obviously it's quite a different set. Because for anyone who's not watched that series, it was kind of like Bake Off with Fishing. It was uh, eight or so contestants, and then each week they'd go somewhere else, and then it'd be yourself and uh, Ben Fogel, if I remember correctly, he was on it. Yes. And, then, and then you'd have like a guest judge, and you'd all work out, you know, for whatever reason why they'd go. So what was that experience like, apart from piss-poor social media? <laughs> it was <weird>. um... <laughs> It was mixed, really, Jack, because, yeah. I mean, I, I really thought, because I was effectively the Simon Cowell of fishing in that. In that, that was the, <laughs> my job was to, to judge the competition. And I've got to say that the people who took part in it, they, they did a good job in getting together a bunch of people of different characters and backgrounds and whatever. So that was absolutely fine. But where it fell down was that they made some very poor choices of venues that could have been avoided, particularly when we went to Laos, for example, which was a horrendous place. I have no desire to ever. <laughs> and, you know, there just were no fish there. And, and, and anybody with a small amount of experience, I actually said that to them before we went and offered my, my services in terms of the research element of the programme. But they, that was polite. So why, why did they push for Laos then? Because I think it fitted this BBC vision of, you know, the world. And, you know, right, okay. A whole kind of BBC culture-ish thing. And won't it be wonderful? I mean, I remember people saying to me, isn't it wonderful? No, it's horrible. There's no fishing. <laughs> it's to hell. No, there's nothing wonderful about it, quite honestly. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hot, uh, humidity in the 40s. Uh, sorry, in the near 100, uh, temperatures in the 40s, people dropping with heat stroke, no fish. No, to be honest, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to gild the lily. I didn't like it at all. And there were mistakes of that nature made. It was quite a constraining framework. Parts of it were utterly fascinating. You know, the crew were made up of some seriously talented wildlife cameramen and women. And they were a good team. They were very, very talented people. Too many producers. A little bit political. Ben Fogel was an interesting character. Ben really is the ultimate professional. And I know that his role in the series among anglers was heavily questioned. But 
I learned a lot from him on a professional basis because he managed to detach from all of the politics of that shoot. Um, and often I'd find him in a corner on his own. I remember saying to him one day, I said, you don't mix it really, do you? And he went, oh, no, 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 no. He said, I'm here to do a job. And the best way for me to do the job is for me to get on with my part and leave them to get on with their part. And there the twain shall meet. And he taught me a lot about working in, in quite a busy, hectic environment like that with lots of personalities. The producer was a lady called Sam Beddoes, who is an amazingly focused and talented human being, actually. And, but Sam and I certainly clashed for the first couple of shoes because I felt she was trying to constrain me, but she had an idea of, of what performance she wanted from me, which was her, as of her right. But I felt at times she wasn't allowing me to be me. Right. And, and so that caused conflict. And I remember we had a bit of a showdown in Cuba where I said, look, Sam, I don't think I can carry on with this. And we had a real sort out, a proper set to. But I learned stuff from Sam, uh, not only in the way that she worked, but also in the way she managed to shape that show. There were large elements of it. I disagreed with Jack. I just didn't agree with the vision, really. And I felt if I'm brutally honest, that I could have made a much better series for about a tenth of the budget that would have attracted more people. Yeah. But that's just me. And it was fascinating to be involved in something of that magnitude. I was convinced it would be a game changer in terms of my career, and it wasn't at all. It was the biggest disappointment in that respect. And the reason was that they didn't market it. They completely failed to market the show. And the vast majority of people that have followed my stuff over the years don't even know that I made that series. And that in itself is a huge damning indictment of the way they went about things. Yeah, you'd think a you know, primetime slot on BBC Two, it would reach a lot of passionate anglers. but I wasn't allowed to share what I was doing on my social media. I mean, right. that's just madness. It's free advertising, isn't it? Totally. Yeah. And there was no marketing of the series at all. So, it, you know, it started with 1.2 million viewers and it finished with 1.2 million viewers. Yeah, so it didn't, uh, yeah. It, and it could have done so much more than that. But if you yeah. gave me a BBC Two slot now and said, hey, here's 10% of that budget, I'd show them some numbers. I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention your partner in crime, uh, Mick Brown. And I was thinking about this the other day. How did you guys first meet then and fish with Mick? Because obviously Mick's a little bit older, uh, or maybe a lot older. I don't actually know the difference. But um, how did you guys first kind of come to, to meet? Well, um, I was at the beginning of my television fishing career with Total Fishing. Mad on fishing. And in fact, I was writing a book, the first book I wrote, which was called Course Fishing by Matt Hayes. And... Um, I just got into the pike scene, really. I'd never been much of a pike fisherman, but the more pike fishing I began to do, the fonder I became of the species and fishing for them. It was obvious, really, that a lot of the big pike were being caught from trout reservoirs. And at that time, I was living in Newport Pagnell, and I fished with Mick on Ravensthorpe Reservoir, which is not a particularly big one. Um, where you could hire a boat for a day and I turned up I was a bit in awe of Mick he was a bit like you know the head boy at school you know I'd read his stuff in magazines and I realized he was a bit of a legend even in those days within his own genre 
and I just found him such an interesting person. So I was a bit of a groupie in a way when I turned up for this day's fishing. And I suggested, Mick's quite a shy person actually, but I suggested that we were both stuck for a boat pond and we were on our own. I said, well, why don't we fish together? And he said, yeah, that's a good idea. And we had a great day. And towards the end of the day, I plucked up the courage to say, look, you know, I'm writing a book about course fishing, but I'm not very good at pike fishing. And I'd quite like someone to sort of write the chapter as a guest, you know, with credit, you know, would you be interested in it? No, he said, I wouldn't be interested in that. And it was just a flat no. <laughs> and it was so um, deflating, really. Uh, but that's Mick. He's very matter of fact about things. He didn't mean any insult by it, but I was quite, quite crestfallen. And then when I was making Total Fishing, we introduced, I say we, it wasn't a raw we, but me and the people I was working with at that time, wanted to introduce some sort of little postcardy humorous elements. And we had a thing called the panel, which was consisted of some fairly eclectic fishing friends of mine. And we did stupid things. Um, people might remember it, like sampling pot noodles, seeing who could make the best sandwich and getting Gord Burton and attached him with rod and line to a Land Rover once because he, I'd just been in caught a great white in Australia and Gord said, oh, I'd love to do that. And it was the closest we could do was to actually hook him up to a Land Rover and let him play a Land Rover driving away. And it, it was just stupid stuff. And in fact, at that same time, um, we'd just started with discovering, I remember a guy called Chris something like that. He was a senior producer there. And he pulled me to one side at the Christmas party. And he said, you know, you're not comedians. You really shouldn't give up your day job. Just stick to the fishing. And I remember saying, listen, mate, you're patronising me. I know what fishermen find funny because I'm one myself. You're not. So how would you know? And basically, I ignored everything he said to me. <laughs> and it was a massively, massively popular part of the show. People still talk about it now. And Mick was one of those characters. After Total Fishing had kind of run its course, I just wanted to do something different, really. I came up, I thought I'd like to do something that's a little bit more less wham-bam, smack-bang-in-your-face magazine show. I want something that's a little bit more of a script and a bit more gentle and a bit of time to develop. And I also had it in my head that I needed, I wanted to work with a partner and have some sort of foil. I just thought, you know, a lot of people are threatened by working with someone else. And I've met people like that in my career who are terrified of working with me. And I know the reason why, because I'm worried I'll nick the job, you know, I'll get the gig. But that's never worried me. And I, I could see that the dynamic of working with someone else, that the two parts would be greater than the individual parts. Together, they would be more powerful. So I remember meeting with Leonie Hutchinson, um, who was Discovery's commissioning editor at the time. And Leonie said, well, well, I'm not sure, really. You're the star of the show and the big personality, and we're doing really well with you. We want to team you up with new production because we think your production's weak, but we're not sure really. Who have you got in mind? And I said, Mick Brown. She went, oh, no, 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 no chance. No chance. So over about two or three meetings, I just didn't give up. And I said, look, I know this bloke. And if I can recreate our friendship on screen, even half of it, you're going to have blockbuster shows. And eventually, Leonie Blesser, and I'm still in contact with her today, backed me. 
but you did say this could be the end of your career, <laughs> then I'm going to have to explain it away. And I'm not sure I can. But anyway, I said, it won't go wrong. And we went off. We made a series called Wet Nets and Winding Roads. And then after that, they loved it. And I said, oh, it's doing brilliant. We, we always knew it would work. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and um, so I thought, how can you create that competitive feeling? And also road trip was very big at the time, you know, and still is really. So I came up with the idea of the Great Rod Race, which was, you know, 40 odd species in however many days. And I must admit, I, I, it was inspired by the BBC Golden Maggot series. And, you know, the idea was it would be me and Mick against the world rather than me and Mick against each other. Yeah. And I'll be honest, I thought it was a crap idea. And I said to Keith, I said, look, I've got this crap idea, but I'll tell you anyway. And he went, that's great. It's exactly what we want. And I phoned Mick. I said, look, I've got to tell you, mate, I've come up with this really crap idea, but we might be saddled with it. He said, Matt, it's brilliant. And I couldn't see it. I mean, I had the idea. The whole show was my idea and the rules were my idea. The concept was my idea, but I just didn't think it was very good. And I could see more holes in it than, than strengths. And so we went off and made Rod Race. And of course, there was some magic there that, you know, propelled it into being. I don't think it's ever had the, the, the um, it's never had the, the credit in a way for the success it deserved because I know of a couple of polls that were conducted. I've never been an establishment character and it didn't suit the angling industry for me to be the biggest name in it. Um, but I know how successful that series was. I was going to say, I think it's pretty well fondly remembered among anglers. You know, I mean, it's, it's always passion for angling's the top. I'm sorry. That, that's always just, that's just the way it is. But I think great rod races, it's it's up there. It's it's a you know it's a fantastic series. It's a great idea, and it's and it's something different than carp, carp, carp. So it's a uh, you know, I think it is very fondly remembered among anglers for now. Then, yeah, it's really nice of you to say that, and I know that it is because I've seen some of the surveys that have been done, etc. And of course, the person we haven't mentioned is John Wilson, because I mean I was a Wilson fan. Bought one of those Wonderer waistcoats. Um, ridiculous corduroy thing yeah um but i i just just found wilson's early shows really really captivating uh, especially that one he made in a weir pool on the wensom when he was after big roach and caught a couple of bream and, yeah i remember that you know, double figure weren't they i don't think they were quite that were they big. not okay they were chunky uh, though but he, but, he, but, he, but he had a he had a white top to his rod you know yeah and of course that spawned this whole thing where everybody had to have white i mean i met john many times actually and he was a great guy he he was always really good about me because i was snapping at his heels all the time people were constantly saying to him oh what do you think about matt hayes expecting to oh he's not very good you know (laughs) never once did he do that i know he didn't because people are only too happy to gossip behind someone's back (laughs) john was always very 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 complimentary about me and in latter years we got to chat quite a few times and i developed i mean he could be cantankerous wilson he could be quite difficult with people you know yes i think he was he was an alpha male wasn't he he was but i i always got on well with john and i respected his professionalism he could write he could take photographs he understood a script 
he understood entertainment. I think he was a wonderful broadcaster, really. So we mustn't, we mustn't leave Wilson out. Passion Franklin, of course, I mean, it was beautifully filmed. I think I disagree with you a little bit now. That there are times it looks a bit twee, but it's easy to say that in hindsight. It was, of course, beautifully filmed. And Chris Yates is a genius. I mean, he wrote probably one of the finest pieces of angling literature in modern years when he wrote Casting at the Sun. I mean, for me, that's a top three book. And Yates, I've met Chris several times. We're chalk and cheese, really. But I really admire him. He's an eccentric, he's a one-off character. Bob James, well, I won't be so enthusiastic about him if I'm telling you the truth. But nonetheless, you're right, they created some magic. So I think Rod Race was kind of heralded in a new era. And now that's gone, you know, and you look at the modern programmes, especially that people like Ali and Dean are making. And it's not the way I would make programmes, but nor should it be. Because I didn't make programmes like Chris Yates or John Wilson. I made programmes my own way. And therefore, Ali and Dean, you know, the most well-known ones now, I think, they're making fishing for a generation of people who didn't grow up with me. They're growing up with those guys. So everything moves on. I think there's always room for quality, Jack. And that passion for angling vibe, which is to celebrate what passion for angling did was it got to the heart of the matter, which is why people go fishing and, and it celebrated the sport. And, it, you know, you look at the delivery now in modern times and you can think of a million ways that you could really crisp it up and make it a lot better. But in its time, it was unparalleled in its way that it actually transmitted this. It, it, what? What it did was it enabled a guy who'd always struggled to explain to his missus why he goes fishing to say, that's why I do it. What I think, I mean, it might be biased because I'm a cameraman myself, but the thing, it's not so much Chris and Bob, it's not so much the fishing, it's the cinematography is, is phenomenal. And that's really because Hugh spent, I think he said, because Hugh's on the podcast the week after you're, you're on this one. So I went and interviewed Hugh a, a few weeks ago. And um, it's just the, the levels that he went to get the shots and he was a, a perfectionist I think he probably doesn't like me saying that word but he was a perfectionist you know it was it was phenomenal so you, you mentioned you've worked all you know all over the world but I wondered is there anywhere in the world that you haven't fished yet that you'd like to no I don't think so Jack I mean yes there's people obviously there's many places that I haven't fished but uh, no I, there's no burning ambitions in terms of destinations I, I would quite like to go to Greenland um, because oh, they, they've got incredible Arctic char fishing out there, and I would love to see that. Uh, is that the yeah. pelagic ones? Yes, most of them are, um, indeed. But, I mean, you know, I'd just love to see it and fish out. It's a fascinating place. But I think, really, uh, that's probably the only one. Uh, my days of yearning to travel are, are pretty much over. When I came here to Norway, initially over 20-odd years ago, and then... On, on the latest incarnation about 16, 17 years ago, when we made Lake Escapes. I, I came home in a way, I felt that I'd come home. I'd always liked Scandinavia. I'd spent increasing amounts of time in Sweden, pike fishing actually. Uh, then I came here, I got into salmon fishing in the end. People always say, 
you know, what part of the beautiful young woman who's 20 years younger than you and owns a stretch of one of the best salmon rivers in the world don't you like, you know? Um, there wasn't a, people think that, but that's not the case. I've been always able to fish wherever I want uh, and still can. I can yeah. blag a fishing trip anywhere in the world. Just <laughs> but, so that was never part of it for me. And I miss at times, especially in the winter, I greatly, greatly miss the, the course fishing, you know. But uh, I, no, I, that, that's gone. I've got a young family here now. Um, I enjoy my life here. I, I enjoy my fishing more than ever, actually. Uh, the course fishing as well as the fly fishing. But I just don't desire to globetrot anymore. No, and I guess when you have got the gala on your doorstep, then it's a pretty, it's a pretty nice local patch to, to have to cast a, a fly out to. Yes, well, I mean, I got into fly fishing like every other form of fishing. I mean, I can remember lots of chapters in my angling career where people in the media and from within the industry would say to me, oh, no, no, you can't get into that fly fishing. No, 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 stick to what you do. And, and you know, I've always tried to push boundaries and barriers. And it's never been about the commercial side for me. It's always been about the fishing. The commercial side's had to follow the fishing. But, you know, when I'd done a massive, massive gambit of course fishing and, you know, catching lots and lots of big course fish, I began to want to experience different things. And um, when I went to Cuba, I really discovered the joys of lure fishing, initially for tarpon and snook and uh, you know, species like that. And then fly fishing for bonefish as well. So that kicked off the love of what I'd call sport fishing, where I didn't want to dangle a bait. I wanted to feel the bite or see the bite. And that's lure fishing and fly fishing. But I realised there was so much I had to learn about both. And so I went on this huge journey, you know, it's probably taking 20 years to the point of, uh, I took it back home. I thought, well, I need to get better at lure fishing. I, I was probably the first person really in the UK to spend a lot of time targeting Xandron lures. You all mm. remember that? Yeah, yeah, we went, we went Xander fishing a few years ago, um, didn't we? Well, when I started fishing for Xander, people didn't fish for them with lures, mate. There was only mm. one other person, and that was Chris Labrant. And I remember phoning Chris, he lived down in Tewkesbury and trying to pick his brains, and he was really nice, but he basically told me nothing. <laughs> so I set off on the Warwick's Raven, never having caught Xander before. I caught one on a bait from Ferry Meadows on the Neve. And I cracked it. And I, I learned how to catch Sandra on lures and um, told Mick. Mick then went off and did the same things. And uh, we had amazing success. So I got, I got a real crossover from my tropical fishing into my course fishing, uh, etc. And exactly the same thing happened with fly fishing. Initially, I was after tarpon and bone fishing permits. But eventually, I ended up fly fishing for salmon and sea trout because I, I, I wanted to do the hardest thing. I wanted to catch fish the most difficult way uh, and probably the most difficult, most precious fish of them all, the migratory game fish, and also the wild brown trout, which is very different to a stocked brown trout. I mean, it's almost like chalk and cheese, really, yeah. in their behaviours and also degree of difficulty in catching them. You know, stock fish are very easy to catch. They're, they're attracted to glittering, glistening things. And you can provoke an aggressive response. But if you fish for wild fish, then, they, 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 you know, you are in a primeval mode. Yeah. That you're appealing to instinct um, more than anything. 
And I wanted a part of that. And I realized I wasn't very good at it. And of course, you know, I've carried on learning and learning and learning, but I wanted to experience ultimately that. And I felt that probably the really hardest thing to do of them all was salmon, sea trout, brown trout and char. Yeah. Uh, I hesitate to say grayling because actually grayling are very easy to catch on flies. Yeah, um, they're quite obliging, aren't they? They are very much so, but not. I still love them. Don't get me wrong, I love them. I'm going to end on a quick fire question. So I've got five questions that I'll just rattle off, and we'll just go what you know what you think the answer is. So, uh, what was the first fish that you caught? I'm not sure. I think, <laughs> it had well, fins. I, I'm pretty sure it was a stickleback. All right, that's a good uh, one. But, uh, in in a net because that's how I started. I remember fishing with tiddler nets, and my dad used to take me to Liso's Park in Hale Zoe where we'd fish for tadpoles in the spring and red butchers as he called them which were you know the male stickle yeah beautiful coloration on them and we used to catch them I mean sadly you don't see so many sticklebacks now I see more in Norway than I do in Mm. the UK Um, so I'm pretty sure it was a stickleback the the first fish on rod line almost certainly was a gudgeon from from the Staffs Worcester Canal where I used to do a lot of my boyhood fishing they were uh, well i was going to say they're a first fish for a lot of people but i don't think they are now i think probably uh you know maybe a few years ago they might have been but not not so much now uh, not with uh, not, not with the rise of commercial fisheries i mean no. one, one of the big regrets that i've got is that you know kids can go out in a day and catch 10 species mm, yeah um but none of them look like they should for most commercial fisheries they're, they're, not, they're not glowing and bright and crisp crisp edge to the fins they don't the tench don't look like tench they look slightly off color yeah gray aren't they and, uh, yes they are and, I, and that is the downside there's good there are upsides of commercial fisheries but but if there's a downside it is that the actual representation of the species is somewhat disappointing and of course it's all the fun of the fair you know i mean i was i was in my 20s before i caught my first car and i've yeah. been fishing since the age of three <laughs> I was I was 18 before I caught my first tench. Not as yeah, it's a bit, I kind of take it for granted a little bit now. And I think, uh, like you say, with the gudgeon, a lot of the mini species get um, sidelined. I, I haven't caught a rough for Jesus donkey. I'd love, I'm on a mission, a personal mission to catch a. I haven't caught one for so many years, but I'd love there's to catch a rough. A few, again. There's still a few on the seven down on the Mucky Meadow. Okay, I was overrun with them at one time. The Mucky Meadow at Beaudley. But like you, you mentioned Crabtree earlier on. I was, you know, transfixed by Crabtree. Uh, I've always loved comic and um, cartoons anyway. Um, And I was a huge collector as a lad of American Marvel comics. And, you know, my son now, we're collecting them again. I've got the bug again. I've always enjoyed (laughs) that form of art. And of course, Crabtree was, was, it was a Bible to me. Because many of the fish in Crabtree, I'd never caught. I was never likely to. I remember, you know, reading the thing about bream and, you know, them putting, putting stuff into balls of clay so it would get to the bottom. And bread was a bait we never fished with. We only ever used maggots. We were rough-ass brummies, you know. We used to buy... <laughs> I can still remember the, 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 the wax, the smell of the wax keep nets in the tackle shop and, and, and the maggots in there and the quill floats. And... It was a magic world and Crabtree was magic and it was magic because it, it was slightly surreal. No, it was, it, 
I've seen some of the cartoon strips from it, and yeah, they are they are great. They're kind of like a bygone era. It's not something that had worked now, unfortunately. I don't think. No, well, that's what, I'm t- that's what I was talking about before. You know, yeah. about things being in their time, Jack. You know, yeah. They, I'm sure there are things that happen now that people it has the same response because it, 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 it'd be a YouTube video now, wouldn't it? Yes, it probably would. Yeah. And, you know, I do think there is still room for analog experiences. People still buy angling books. Why? Because there's something about seeing something in print that is quality and quality is always quality. But there is so much choice now. But I think what we need to do sometimes is when I was young and growing up in fishing, my enthusiasm was off the scale. And from what I see of the modern generation, it's still there. They're still interested, aren't they? Yes, but it's inspired by different things. And as much as I might want to decry, you know, the modern world and, 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 you know, wallowing this sort of um, nostalgic, and I do sometimes, don't get me wrong, I'm as bad as anyone else. But I also recognise that, you know, it moves on and that it's not right for me to decry other people's passion and somehow say it's a lesser version than my own because I knew all the really good stuff. I just don't know, Jack, I'm older now, so I don't see the world through an 18-year-old's eyes anymore, unfortunately. No, well, I mean, I'm nearly 30 now, so I'm, uh, I'm wow. again. <laughs> I know, <laughs> yeah. old man. <laughs> I know, I am, I uh, feel the cracks coming. Uh, Favourite fish? I, I don't, I can't name just one, I don't. I don't think I can name just one. Um, okay. I, you know, I, I've given different answers to this. That's the <laughs> uh, and, and that the truth is that it's always been the one I'm fishing for at the time. I think probably pike. Oh, okay. I, That's I, a good I, one. I, I, the thought of a forty-pound pike dropping over my landing net rim is mind-blowing I, I i can't think of another fish that might cause my legs to turn to jelly quite as much i i mean i don't know how big it was it was certainly over 25 but i've filmed i've filmed a couple of big pike in my time and when you you know when you see them they're like units they're like submarines aren't they and there is something quite impressive so to think that they could be a pike nearly double that would be pretty incredible to see so i'm I'll, I can forgive you for that. I think Pike's a good choice. Uh, well, it is today. I mean, some people think it's chub because I've always, and I do genuinely love chub fishing. I do spend a lot of time, when I, when I get fishing time in the UK now, I'm never happier than when I'm lure fishing or fly fishing for pike, perch. And yeah. I caught my first pike on a fly, actually, a few few weeks ago at Rutland. It was great. There weren't big, there were any little jacks, but it was great fun just kind of stripping these little flies and they're going at them they were cracking yeah. so it made me think you know double figure pike would be uh, would be great fun on the fly. well i've i've actually had i've actually had uh, 230s on fly wow and you know me and myself and mick probably about 10 to 15 20 years ago that period we had a real period where we were pike fly fishing a lot and i i mean i go all in on everything i'm time the flies and you know um, but I loved it, and I, yeah. I've got a, a massive respect for pike. Yeah, and they're so delicate as well. They're these powerful predators, but you know, if you don't look after them, they can they can struggle Absolutely. a little bit. Right. I, I'm, I suspect you might struggle to answer this one as well. Then, I was going to say a favourite venue. 
Yeah, I'd, well, I mean, I've just completed a thing called Fisherman's Country. And I finished the edit literally pretty much the day that my house, my cottage by the seven was sold. And it's a celebration. It's, it's basically seven or eight years of mine and mixed fishing diaries from about 2012 to 2019 on the seven and its tributaries. And it, it, it was a fitting thing to do, really, Jack. You know, it was a nice way to bring to an end that sort of chapter in my life, I suppose. Uh, the Seven, I grew up by it, really. It was the first proper river I fished as a kid. And I lived by it most of my life. So I, it would be difficult. But of course, now I live in Norway and we manage and we're lucky enough to own part of this magnificent salmon river called the Gaula. So I feel hugely protective towards the Galva and I'm involved in some of the conservation aspects of that that go along with salmon fishing. So it, it would probably be split between one of those two and the canal. I've got to say, I love fishing the canal, the Stewpony Canal, the Staffs Worcester, around Stourbridge and Kinver, where I grew up. It's like going into another world. It might be on the edge of urban chaos. I think that's part of the appeal. Yeah. It always felt safe and it was always such an adventure that I do love fishing the canal, mate. Still do. There's a bit of a juxtaposition with canals, isn't there? Because like you say, they're urban, but then you've got these corridors into the countryside as well. So, um, yeah, I can definitely that's agree. That's very with you. well put. You should yeah. have answered that question instead of me. <laughs> Your answer was miles better than mine well you know i don't i don't want to uh, knock you off your pony uh matt have you got well I, again i suspect i know the answer to this one as well but favorite method yeah I, I'd, I'd say fly fishing because i think it is the most beautiful way to fish yeah um so and, and there's always massive room for improvement i mean, i remember someone one of the most ridiculous things i've ever heard people say and i've heard it quite often is you'll talk to a fly fisherman about worm fishing for salmon and sea trout and i say lot of skill in worm fishing you know no there isn't you could teach someone to worm fish for salmon and sea trout in about 10 minutes but you couldn't teach someone to fly fish from properly in 10 minutes or 10 hours or 10 weeks no, so no. i've always regarded that as a completely stupid thing to say and if you're one of the people saying it please be ashamed of yourself <laughs> because i've spent a lifetime getting frustrated with fly fishing and how <laughs> difficult it is it's so bloody hard sometimes I don't want to be derogatory about the other stuff. I'm just quite, I'm happy if I'm ledgering, I'm happy if I'm spinning, I'm happy if I'm drop shotting, I'm happy if I'm watching a float. Trotting a float takes some, some whacking. Yeah, that's my favourite. Down a current takes some whacking, I'll tell you. Yeah. That's right up there. It's a good um, method. You know, stop asking me to name favourite things. <laughs> All right, well, my last one isn't a favourite, but the, the last question then before we go is, have you got an angling hero? Yes, I've got a few, actually. My grandfather, Dave Massey, who was my mum's dad, was a fine all-round angler. He was a working-class man, grassroots guy, very, very clever guy, who could fish just as well for salmon and sea trout and, you know, trout as he could for coarse fish. He won matches, carpeted the house, won stuff to decorate the house in the days when people were very poor through his course fishing, but he was an equally fine game fisherman. So he's still my great angling hero. My dad is my hero full stop, really. We've been together all through my fishing life. And it, 
you know we've always fished together and and you know because of that he'll always be my fishing hero of people more latterly a guy called Stuart Allen who's uh Stu I met back in the 80s and um we've been friends ever since we fished all over the place he inspired in me the desire to go and catch bigger fish and you know I can go on from there I mean Peter Stone was a huge hero of mine when I was a kid growing up you know I I read Crabtree and then I borrowed books from our local library um, and of course I read Walker as everybody did but I preferred Pete Stone Stoney was very down to earth. Walker was quite cantankerous and incredibly bright. Was Peter Stone the old boy who used to turn up on Total Fishing every now and again? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I, the name and, does ring about. Um, uh, he wrote a book called Bream and Barbel. He wrote various books about his exploits on the Thames. I never thought I'd meet Stoney. I remember reading his books, which I borrowed from Bridge North Library, along with some of Walker's classics, you know, like Drop Me a Line, which is utterly brilliant. And Walker was unquestionably a highly intelligent, brilliant, brilliant angler. But Peter Stone was a brilliant man. And he had heart. There was nothing twee or false or up his own arse about Stoney. And I'm not saying Walker was. Unfortunately, I never actually met him. But there was a slight arrogance about Walker's writing, which wasn't there with Stoney. Stoney always seemed to me to be a bloke that I could go fishing with and not be overawed, learn incredibly much from. And as luck would have it, I managed to meet Pete Stone one day in Oxfordshire. Uh, and I, I couldn't get over it. I, I mean, this man had been my one of my fishing, albeit never having met the bloke one of my fishing mentors. And I met this warm, generous, beautiful man who I instantly just like that. And, you know, he taught me something. I could never get over how much respect Stoney displayed towards me and how he would be incredibly, I'd say, oh, I was about to touch fishing, Pete, and I did this thing. Really? Did you really? And he'd lean forward. Did you really? And, and then he'd ask me a question. And I'd think, hang on, this bloke's forgotten more about fishing than I'll probably ever know. And here he is, intently interested in what I've got to say. Uh, and that was a remarkably humbling experience. And frankly, a mark of greatness. Stoney the man was better even than the bloke that I read about. And, you know, we talked about Walker. And one of the greatest things that was ever said about me, the only compliment perhaps that's really ever meant anything because it came from him. Well, there was two things he said. There were two things he said, which are probably the only compliments I, I remember. First one was that someone asked him towards the end of his life, for the Barbell Society, what was the best day's fishing you ever had? And he said, it's when I went with Matt Hayes fishing for Rudd at Elstone. So number one, there was that. They then asked him in the same magazine, who's the best angler you've ever met? And he said, me. And somebody said, not Walker. He said, no, 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 no. <laughs> Matt Hayes was a much better angler than Walker. But you've got to remember that Walker 
lived in a time when things were there to be invented. Yeah. Now, I, I think he was wrong about that because Dick Walker did so many great things. But the very fact that he was prepared to say it about me, I can't tell you, mate, what that meant. I don't agree with it. But the fact that Peter Stone said that about me was, well, I never thought that would happen. It goes back to what we were saying earlier about when you meet, um, you know, particularly with the job that you do and, and what I do, I get to meet a lot of people and you get the, the, the kind of the perceived perception of what they're like and what they're like. And then behind the cameras, they can be a different person. So it's always reassuring when you do meet someone and they are a genuinely nice human being. So it's a, a nice thing to have. Oh, mate, he was, he was an absolute topper. Twice the man that I thought he'd be, if not more. And an incredible angler, an incredible countryman, but more than anything else, I loved him for his character. Which is what you want. He's a good guy. Well, look, Matt, that brings us to the end of the podcast. So I just want to say a huge thanks for for joining me and and having a bit of a chat. It's been a pleasure, Jack. I've watched your career, and especially with the filming that you do, which I'm incredibly fascinated in. And, you know, it's a very difficult industry to make your way in the angling industry. And um, I wish you the best of luck with it, mate. So it has been my pleasure. Cheers. Look, take care, buddy. That was Matt Hayes. Always a pleasure to catch up with Matt. And it's apparent how hard Matt works behind the scenes. It's easy to think he just turns with a rod and cracks on, but he puts a lot of his time, energy and effort into his programmes. He's recently announced he's working on a new series of Rod Race, so keep an eye out for that. And if you'd like to find out more, or perhaps do some salmon fishing in Norway with him, there's a link in the description. I hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. Do check out Britain's Hidden Fishers, and next week I'll be talking to Marina Gibson about the perceptions people have on women anglers, and are women better anglers than men? This has been the Bearded Tits Podcast. I've been your host, Jack Perks, and I'll see you next time. Cheers.